preaching, I think. Uh, you may come tell me after the service, but preaching is one of those few professions I'm aware of that if you actually do your job really, really, really well, you may get fired. Uh, it's happened to several of my friends that I went to seminary with, men who committed first to God and then to the people of God to preach the Word of God. Not simply the parts that everybody want to hear, you know, but many of the parts that people hate or do not wish to hear. You know, the modern church has, in many places, devolved into simply a place to have happy church. And I love happy church, man. Happy church is great. I love happy church. But you know, if you're going to preach verse by verse through the Bible, some nights, it's not going to be happy church. It's not going to be that. We're going to tremble before an awesome God. And we're going to learn what He has to say to us. And we're going to be faithful to go out in the world and tell people what God says. Not, not what anyone else has said, but what God says. And so, that's our prayer tonight as we look at this text. You may remember um, last week, those of you who were here, why did the false teachers flourish in Old Testament Israel? Because the people wanted false teachers. You remember the, the text, Isaiah 30, verses 9 and 10. God says, you are rebellious people. You are false sons. You refuse to listen to Me. You tell the prophets not to prophesy what is right, but to speak pleasant words and prophesy illusions. You remember that? And do you remember we talked about why do false prophets find traction in the New Testament church? Anybody remember? Same reason. And we went to that great text, 2 Timothy 4, 3 and 4. God says there'll be a, a time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. Men have always loved a good tickle over the Word of God. Am I not right? And men have always loved superficial pleasantries and illusions over the hard truth that God brings to His people in many, many places in the Scripture. As I told you earlier, I preach verse by verse because it keeps me honest. It keeps me honest. I'm not tempted to edit God. I'm not tempted to simply preach all the things I, I love to preach. Right? It keeps me honest before the Lord. And uh, that's important for me <laughs> and, and for you. So, we just preach the next verse at ICM. And that's what we'll do tonight. One thing is inescapably clear if you read the first nine verses of 2 Peter chapter 2, the God of the Bible judges those who sin against Him and rebel against His law. By my count, there are 14 references to destruction, judgment, hell, and punishment in the first nine verses of 2 Peter chapter 2. Even a superficial read of the Bible reveals that God is not unclear about His righteous intent to pour out His wrath on every rebellious creature in the cosmos. Angels or men. 
God's wrath and His judgment are pervasive themes throughout Scripture. They're not, you know, propositions extrapolated from some obscure passage. God speaks about this Old Testament, New Testament. You can't miss it if you're going to honestly read Scripture. I'll just give you a couple of Old Testament verses. Nahum 1 and 2. Pardon me, chapter 1, verse 2. A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on His adversaries and He reserves wrath for His enemies. Ezekiel chapters 7-9, through 9, just a couple of excerpts from those chapters. God says, I shall send my anger against you. I will pour out my wrath on you. I will spend my anger against you. I shall judge you according to your ways. Therefore will I also deal in fury. My eye shall not spare, neither will I have pity. Though they cry in my ears with a loud voice, yet I will not hear them. I shall deal in my wrath. Isaiah chapter 13, some excerpts. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore all hands will fall limp, and every man's heart will melt. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel with fury and burning with anger. Thus God will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. God will also put an end to the arrogance of the proud. Lastly, Jeremiah 30, 23-24. Behold, the tempest of the Lord, wrath has gone forth. The fierce anger of the Lord will not turn back until He has performed and accomplished all the intent of His heart. There are 16 Hebrew and Greek words translated wrath in the Bible. 20 plus times there's an adjective in front of the word wrath. It is the English word fierce. We're not simply talking about the wrath of God as Jonathan Edwards says in his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. We're not just talking about the wrath of God. We're talking about the fierce wrath of God. He says, Edwards in that famous sermon, he says, Oh, what dreadful, inexpressible, inconceivable depth of misery shall the sinner be subject to who can know the power of God's infinite anger. Regarding the reality and eternality of God's wrath in hell, we have, we have more from the lips of Jesus Christ than any other source in the Bible. Jesus doesn't deal with superficial pleasantries and, and illusions and ear tickles and myths. You know, the thing about Jesus, He loves people enough to tell them the truth. You know, there's no... He's not going to spin it. He's just going to tell you the truth. Because, oh, He loves the people that are hearing Him and He wants them to repent. And you know how Jesus described the wrath of God in hell. And let me just give you a very broad stroke summary. Jesus is clear. He says hell is real. Hell is eternal. Hell is terrible. Hell is deserved. And hell is inescapable once one is there. Jesus says in the Gospels, hell is eternal punishment. I'm not going to give you the Scripture references. If you want them, you can have my notes or you can ask me for them. Jesus said hell is eternal fire. Jesus says, hell is a furnace of fire. Jesus says, hell is an unquenchable fire. Jesus says, hell is a place where everyone is salted with fire. Jesus said, hell is a place of torment and agony with no exit. 
Jesus said hell is a place of outer darkness. Jesus says hell is a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's seven times in the Gospels. Seven times. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus said hell is a place where the worm does not die. Three times in chapter 9 of Mark alone. I could cite many other New Testament passages, but we'll just let the words of Jesus stand. We won't, we won't expound on that further. In reaction to Jesus' horrifying description of eternal damnation in hell, many have sought to mitigate His clear teaching. And I know many of you have heard these things. I'm just going to give you two real quick. At worst, there's annihilation. You know, the resurrected body and soul of the unbeliever simply goes out of existence at some appropriate time. There's a lot of good arguments against that, uh, logical arguments. I won't, I won't make any of those uh, tonight. But this, the biggest problem with it is it contradicts what Jesus Christ has clearly said. Secondly, at best, the unbeliever... There's this uh, universal restoration at some appropriate time the resurrected body and soul of the damned are redeemed. Somehow hell is redemptive. It's just, it's redemptive somehow. Although there's no inclination in Scripture that this is a possibility. So this denies the clear teaching of Jesus Christ. Beloved, there's only one problem with both of these teachings. You can't find them in Scripture. You simply can't find them in the Bible. If we just let, as you often hear me say, if we just let words mean what words mean, okay? And I know there's some really smart guys, you know, who can tell you that black means white. You know, you should never believe a guy who tries to tell you black means white. But if we just simply let words mean what they mean, let sentences mean what they mean, let language mean what it means, God is crystal clear. There is not one shred of credible hope that anyone will be annihilated or that anyone will ultimately be restored through hell into the presence of God. There's absolutely no warrant for that in Scripture. And I just want to insert a well, we, we know this. Hebrews 9.27 is appointed for men to die once and after this comes the judgment. Revelation 20, 12-15. You guys know the great text. Everyone whose name was not in the, uh, found in the, in the book of life, they are thrown into the lake of fire. This is what God says. Judgment, damnation. If you're outside of Christ. Death, judgment, damnation. This is the clear teaching of the Bible. I know that many out there, they're spinning myths and yarns and fables because people like to have their ear tickled. But I challenge you, you come to me with the Word of God and you justify annihilationism or you justify universal restoration. You can't do it. You cannot do it. And actually let the words mean what they mean. I just want to interject D.A. Carson, a great theologian in the States. I just want to tell you, it's one of my favorite quotes with respect to eternal... Judgment. He says this, Not only will justice be done, justice will be seen to be done. God will shut every mouth at judgment. There won't be one man walking away saying, well, that's not fair. That's not right. That's not what I deserve. That's not going to happen. When God sends the damned to hell, they're going to know it's right. 
Every mouth will be shut. Romans 3, I think it's verse 19. God will shut every mouth. So in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 3-9, through 9, we see God's intent and willingness to justly condemn all, any and all, angels or men, any moral creature who would defy Him and rebel against Him. If you didn't hear last week's sermon, I think it would be really, really good if you went out on the podcast site and downloaded it because it really sets up all the sermons in chapter 2 of 2 Peter. And it would particularly help with, with this sermon tonight. So as those of you who were here last week, you may remember I stopped, which I almost never do, but I stopped in the middle of a verse. We're going to pick up tonight, 2 Peter chapter 2, halfway through verse 3. <coughs> we know that... <coughs> We know that God is condemning false teachers here. We get down midway through uh, verse 3, and He says, these false teachers, their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. He's saying, you know, what's He saying here? He's saying at least two things. The false teacher's judgment from eternity past, it's from eternity past, it's in the foreknowledge of God, God has always known false teachers would arise. God always knew the judgment that would fall on these false teachers. It would be eternal damnation. So that's what the text is saying. This judgment has been waiting for these guys from long ago. The second thing that's being said is this is an ancient principle. God has always judged false teachers. He's always done it all through the Old Testament. It's It's an ancient principle of God. This is seen clearly in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Zechariah, etc., etc. And then the Holy Spirit personifies this inescapable judgment of God upon these men. He says, judgment is coming for these men, like he's a man. The, The executioner is coming. Judgment is coming. Wrath is coming. God is coming. He is coming. I know that the world thinks he's Terry. The world thinks he's Terry. We're going to see this in, in 2 Peter chapter 3. They mock him. Where is the where is the promise of his coming? Beloved, he's coming. He's coming and judgment comes with Him. We need to be able to talk about this in the world. You know, we don't need to have some saccharine gospel. We need to be able to talk about grown-up gospel things. And we need to do justice to the gospel as we share it with others. Judgment is not idle. It does not sleep. He is coming for these false teachers. Verses 4 and 5. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of of the ungodly. Verse 6. And if He condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly thereafter. The overarching message here, and I want to make sure we get this, verse 4, God will judge even the angels. God, He did not spare the whole world in Noah's day. That's verse 5. Verse 6, God condemned and destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. We'll see it in verse 9. You you heard it read earlier. Then you can be sure God knows how to bring wrath upon the unrighteous, and He will do it. He has done it. 
He will do it. Mock Him if you want. He has done it and He will do it. Create some cartoon image of God in your mind if you want, but God will judge. He has done it and He will do it. This is the clear teaching of the Word of God. God did not spare them when they sinned, these angels, but cast them into hell. So who we, what are we talking about here? Who are these guys? I mean, we know that when Jesus was walking the planet, He was encountering these fallen angels, these demons. He was doing battle with these demons, right? And we also know what Ephesians 6 says uh, about true Christians. It says we are, uh, we are engaged with, in battle, spiritual battle against rulers and powers and spiritual forces of darkness that we struggle with. So we know that demons are still roaming the earth. What's he talking about here? These guys that are already, these guys that are already in hell. Who are these guys? If you were here last spring, we touched on this as we looked at 1 Peter 3, 19 in 20. It's what happened in the time of Noah. It's recorded in Genesis 6. You can go read it for yourselves. The sons of God in the Old Testament, which is always a reference to angels, just means they, they weren't created from procreation. They, they came into being by special creation, the, the creation of God. The sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. It's what Jude 6 and 7 is talking about. Let me just read it to you. And angels who did not keep their own domain but abandoned their proper abode. He has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh. This is what he's saying. These angels went after, went after, uh, they went after human women. They, went, they came in human form. They went after human women. They did not keep their proper domain, their proper realm, their proper sphere, their proper abode, they went after strange flesh. And this sin was so heinous in the eyes of God, the pollution of the human race, a human demonic hybrid race, that God locked these guys up. Those are the angels that we're talking about in verse 4. They're already in hell. Okay? They're already in hell. And I know this is one of the more bizarre uh, incidents in Scripture. I know you probably have a hundred questions. I don't have time to answer any of them because I want to stay on the main point. The main point is, tell, will you tell me, what is the main point? God will judge rebels. Angels or men. It doesn't matter. If you rebel against God, if you defy God, if you break the law of God, He will judge you. He did it. He's going to do it. That's what Peter is saying. Verse 5, And God did not spare the ancient world when He brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. You guys know the text. You know the, the account, the biblical account. Genesis chapter 6-9. through nine. The Lord saw that wickedness of, of man was great upon the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that He had made man upon the earth and He was grieved in His heart. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land and I will bring a flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh. <coughs> Excuse me. Let me just stop and say, do you see the scope? I want you to see the scope and reach of God's wrath. What, what the Holy Spirit is saying to us tonight. Okay? God is prepared and willing to judge even angels. And God is prepared and willing to judge the whole world. 
I want you to get the scope and the reach here. No moral being is exempt from the judgment of God. I don't care if you're an angel or not. I don't care if you're the most beautiful angel God ever created. His name was Satan. And his heart was lifted up in him. And he said, I'll be like God. He's still trying. <laughs> it's not going well for him. And it's not going to end well for him. We have false teachers and just many who are biblically illiterate in the, what is called the modern church today saying that God will not ultimately judge. Why? Because God is a God of love. God is constrained by His love. God cannot vent His wrath because He is constrained by love. Yes, the Bible is clear. God is love. 1 John 4, 8. But the very same Bible tells us that God is holy. Leviticus 11.44 And God's holiness demands that judgment fall on unrighteousness. And from simply reading verses 4 and 5 here in chapter 2 of 2 Peter, we see that God's holiness is clearly not constrained by His love. That would be a false assertion. Let me just say this to you. All of God does all that God does. There's no division in God. His, uh, His justice is expressed in perfect symmetry with His mercy. His compassion is expressed in perfect symmetry with His anger. His wrath is expressed in perfect symmetry with His love. There is a perfect, flawless balance in God's attributes and in His actions. So don't you believe one, for one minute, beloved, that God's constrained by love and He will not damn you or your friends or your family members. If you are outside of Christ, He will most certainly do so. He has done it. He will do it. That's what the text is all about, beloved. He has done it. He will do it. That's what the Word of God is saying to us tonight. You know, people, we start talking about how people have trouble with the heart of God. You know, I, as you can imagine in my line of work, I get a lot of questions and really what they are are thinly veiled accusations against the goodness of God because hell could possibly exist. That eternal damnation could possibly exist in the, in the cosmos that God has created. Let's just stop for a minute. We'll look at, let's just try to assign proper blame here. I think we hear the heart of God most clearly. There are many places, obviously, but the Spirit of God took me to Ezekiel 33.11. God says, as I live, declares the Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked would turn from his ways and live. He says, turn back. Turn back from your evil ways. Why then will you die? This is the heart of God. You got a backhanded accusation against God about hell? You better stick that back in your pocket, beloved. You know what Jesus said in Matthew 23, 37? Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stone those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you are not, does anybody know, willing! And then we see the heart of man. The women are studying this. I don't know if, you've got, if you guys have gotten to Romans chapter 3 yet. Have you guys gotten to Romans 3 yet? 
Here's the heart of man. God says there's none righteous, not even one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There's not, pardon me, there's none who does good. There's not even one. Their throat is an open grave. Their feet are swift to uh, uh, shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. There is no fear of God before their eyes. You know, one of my most frequently asked questions as a pastor is why is the world so messed up? And again, many times there's this backhanded accusation it must be because God's messed up. It must be because God's not good. There's some flaw in God. (laughs) Beloved, read your Bible. There's nothing wrong with the heart of God. It's the heart of man. That's why the world is so messed up. And we've got to take responsibility. When someone asks you that question, tell them, because of me and because of you. That's why the world's messed up. It's not the heart of God, beloved. It's the heart of man. C.S. Lewis, listen to this. He says, The damned are, in one sense, successful rebels to the end. The doors of hell are locked on the inside. I know I've shared this with you before. I think this is an apt description of what is going on. Hell is not redemptive. Men don't suddenly start to love God in hell. In fact, they, they hate God all the more. And if the condition for coming out of hell is to bow my knee and love Jesus Christ, I'll not do it. That's what Lewis is saying. Rebels are rebels for eternity. That's what Lewis is saying. I think it's an apt and accurate description. So listen, beloved, when it comes to hell, God is not the bad guy. You're the bad guy. I'm the bad guy. And I should go down in the pit. That's why I got pretty moved earlier. You should go down in the pit. But if you love Jesus tonight, you'll never even get close to the pit. Hey, if you love Jesus tonight, you're a co-heir. Right? You're an adopted son or daughter. You'll never go down to the pit. Praise God, right? Praise God. We will not go down into the pit because He is a great God. Let me quote Lewis one more time. He says, there are only two kinds of people. Those who say to God, God, Your will be done. We know who those are. (laughs) Those are Christians. Born again Christians. And he said, and then there are those who in the end, God says to, Thy will be done. Those are the rebels. God says, well, okay, if that's what you want, go. You know, I hear people blame God because God lets men have what they want. You know, I, I never understood, I don't understand the logic or the psychology of it. Men want what they want. Men go after what they want. And it's God's fault that they end up in hell. Beloved. This is not clear thinking. This is certainly not biblical thinking. The Holy Spirit is vivid, vividly and powerfully making His point here regarding the sure judgment of God upon any and all who defy Him and rebel against Him and His law. But did you notice in verse 5, what else do we learn about God? Someone tell me from verse 5, what else are we learning in the middle of all of this hard judgment? What else are we learning about God? What is it there in verse 5? What did He do? What did He do? He saved Noah. And He saved Noah's family. Right in the middle of judgment, God says, but remember, 
I'm a great Savior. <laughs> I'm a great Savior. You know, it's what God says in Isaiah 45, 21 and 22. It's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. I just go there and I look at it and I praise God. I won't go into the pit because God's a Savior. I won't go into the pit. God says, there's no other God beside me. I'm a righteous God, a God who judges, and a Savior, a God who saves. <laughs> hey man, if you can live your Christianity small, I don't think you've understood it yet. I don't think you've understood it yet. You're supposed to be on your way to the pit. <laughs> but you will never go to the pit. If you are in Jesus Christ, Verses 7 and 8. And if God rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard that righteous man while living among them felt his righteous soul tormented day after day and their lawless deeds. I'm going to come back to verse 6 in just a minute and finish up on that verse. But I just wanted to point out, God says, I'm a Savior to Noah. God says, I'm a Savior to Lot. And you know what God did, right? He went in and drug, he, he dragged Lot out. He's a great Savior. He sent His angels in to drag Lot out. What a great Savior. The Holy Spirit wants each of us to understand at least two things from 2 Peter chapter 2, 4-9. through God is an awesome, fearsome, consuming fire God and He will judge His enemies. And God is a long-suffering, compassionate, merciful, gracious Savior who will save His people. These are the true, two truths about God that we're seeing on display tonight. And you guys know this, if you studied your Bible much, you know that repetition in the Bible is always a literary device of emphasis. It's always a literary device of emphasis. The Holy Spirit is saying as emphatically as He can, God will judge. He judged the angels. He judged the whole world in Noah's day. And He judged Sodom and Gomorrah. God will judge. God will judge. So we see the repetition and the emphasis of the text. So why did God, verse 6, reduce these cities to ashes and make examples of them? God says because their sin was exceedingly grave. Genesis 18.20 So obviously there are all manner of sin in Sodom and Gomorrah. But what sin does the biblical account reveal as pervasive in Sodom? It's the sin of homosexuality. I'll just read part of the text to you there. Genesis 19, 4 and 5. The men of the city surrounded the house, both young and old. All the people, these are all the, believe it or not, it says all the people from the whole city, from every quarter, came to Lot's house. These angels in human form came to Lot's house. They're in Lot's house. All the men from every quarter of Sodom, and, from Sodom come that they might have relations with these men. These men are trying to get to these strangers so they can have sex with them. This is the clear meaning of the text. And I'm not going to go into a lot of detail. 
you can go read the story for yourself. And I just want to interject. If you've been around as long as I have, you're probably shocked and stunned and mostly heartbroken at where our culture is with respect to homosexuality. I never dreamed that I would live to see what I am living to see. This breathtaking degeneration of the culture regarding the sin of homosexuality. To use God's Word, Romans chapter 1, homosexuals have taken the degrading passions and have been successful in many Western nations to turn that into a politically protected and culturally celebrated civil right. But you know this, beloved. If you're a Christian, you know it. It doesn't matter which way the cultural wind is blowing. The true Christian church must simply echo the Word of God and His love to homosexuals. And every other sinner on the planet, repent! And believe. And you will not go down into the pit. Repent. And believe. To agree with the cultural's assessment of homosexuality is to make God a liar. I want you to hear me say this. To agree with the culture and their assessment of homosexuality is to make God a liar and to justify what God has clearly condemned. There's no ambiguity in either the Old or New Testament regarding homosexuality. God says, and I'm just going to, if you want the references, come ask me or I'll give you my notes or a copy of my notes. God says homosexuality is an abomination. God says homosexuality is a detestable act. God says it is uh, a sign of degrading passion and it is unnatural. God says it is an indecent act receiving due penalty. God says it's gross immorality. God says it is unrighteousness and no homosexual shall enter into the kingdom of God. That's 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11. through 11. But here's what I want you to hear and me to hear. How does God finish off that 1 Corinthians 6 passage? He says, He says this, No, no homosexual shall enter the kingdom of God, but God says, But such were some of you, but you were washed, and you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in the Spirit of our God. But such were some of you, Paul said to the Christians, the upshot being that Christians do not hate or shun homosexuals. Ever. We're called to love homosexuals and tell them the truth. We're called to love adulterers. We're called to love fornicators. We're called to love liars and thieves and revilers, as the text says. We love all sinners. And we give the truth to them. Why? Because we love them. We're seeking to love them. And as I told you last week, I know that a lot of what I've said, some of what I've said regarding homosexuality would be considered hate speech in some places. Beloved, it's not hate speech. It's love speech. It's love speech. To tell people what God says. I don't care what the culture says. That's inconsequential to me. And I will not fail to love a homosexual 
because the culture says it's politically incorrect for me to talk to him about his sin. Listen, God doesn't care if your sin is, is politically correct or not. It's a sin. And judgment will come, beloved. You know, what kind of love is it? What kind of love is that? To watch somebody simply head down that path to hell. What kind of love is that? Without saying anything. What kind of love is that? It is, not, it is no love at all. It is no love at all. Every Christian has the same story. It's the same story you have and I have. We were all sinners. We were God-haters. We, or at least God ignores, which is de facto God-hating. Self-absorbed lovers of sin and lovers of self. self and we still struggle with our sin but wherefore I was blind, now I see I am saved. And I will not go into the pit. And brother, if there's anything I can do to keep you from going into the pit, and all I can do is sow seed of truth. That's all I can do. You know, just keep sowing that seed of truth. Only God can save us all. But I'm going to sow that seed of truth. Even if I'm ostracized, even if I'm shunned, even if I lose the relationship, I'm going to sow the truth. I'm going to sow the truth. I'm going to sow the truth. Beloved, we've either had friends and family, we presently have friends or family, or in the future we will have friends and family who are homosexual or are struggling with this sin. Love demands we tell them what God says. Love demands. Love demands it. Verse 9, Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. This is the perfect summation to what we've seen in the previous verses. God knows how to judge those who rebel against Him and God knows how to save those who draw close to Him and love Him Peter is saying, in summary, God is an awesome, fearsome, consuming fire. God who will come in great wrath. If we believe our Bibles, fierce wrath. If we believe our Bibles, infinite wrath. If we believe our Bibles, eternal wrath. And the other thing that Peter is saying to us tonight, our God is a long-suffering, compassionate, merciful, gracious Savior who will save all who will call upon the name of Jesus. I will not go into the pit because of this awesome God. Twelve years ago, I was leading a Bible study. We were, we were studying the wrath and judgment of God, right? Uh, young woman from Argentina, I think. And... Uh, all of a sudden she says, I get it! I said, great, tell us about it. What is it? <clears throat> she had grown up in a uh, pseudo-Christian church. It's one of those churches that never, ever, ever, ever under any circumstances talks about God's wrath, judgment, or hell. Never! It's been completely edited and excised from that denomination. 
And she never understood. She said, I never understood what the bloody cross was about. Now I see. Jesus took my wrath. The tears coming down her cheek. That's what the bloody cross is about. I was supposed to go to the pit, but I won't go to the pit because Jesus took my wrath. The wrath that my sin deserved, Jesus took it. He took it on the cross. She said, I get it. I said, Praise God. Praise God. Praise God. The door has opened. Let me finish. If you know Jesus tonight, you understand that young woman's uncontainable joy because you know what is true. You know you deserved God's worst. And forever and ever and ever you will get God's best. How can you live your Christianity small, beloved? I, I know we all struggle with this. But if we think deeply about this, how can we live it small? And for those of you tonight who may not know Jesus Christ, I leave you with two Scriptures. Romans 2, 4, and 5. Or do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Lastly, Hebrews 2.3. The writer of Hebrews clearly says, How shall anyone escape if he neglect so great a salvation? There will be no escape. So, every man, woman, boy, and girl in this room and around the world We'll meet Jesus. You will look into His eyes one day. You will look into His eyes. The only question is, will you meet Him as your judge or will you meet Him as your Savior? And if there are any here tonight who do not know Christ or you are not sure, if you've come into relationship with Jesus, please come to me. And we'll talk. We don't have to do it tonight. You can email me. You can call me. If you have questions, you come talk to me. Beloved, I don't want anybody in here to go to the pit. You don't have to go to the pit. If you don't know Christ tonight, and you know I don't do invitations. I just don't do them very often. To me, the Bible is the invitation, but I'm going to make sure you understand. If you don't know Christ, if you're not in relationship with Christ, if this has just been religion with you, you come talk to me or you contact me. We'll get together and we'll sort it out together. I praise God for messes like this. It's not easy to preach. Probably not easy to hear. But you know what? God tells us the truth. You've you got to respect Him for that. Even if you're an unbeliever. You've got to respect that He respects us enough to give us the truth. Let's pray together.
Father, we understand from Scripture that You are an awesome, fearsome, consuming fire, God. And You will judge Your enemies. But Father, we also understand from Scripture that You are a long-suffering, patient, gracious, kind, and merciful God. Thank You, Father, that I will not go down into the pit because You came from Me. You came from Me. You came from Me in the most amazing way. And Jesus Christ took my wrath that I should experience for an eternity. He took it. It's gone. My sin is gone as far as the east is from the west. It's gone. What a great God! What a great Savior! Lord, I pray that we would hear You tonight. I pray that we would hear You. We give all glory and honor to the name of our Sovereign Lord, King of Kings, Jesus Christ. Amen.